0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton. Today I'm here with Hayden again, and we're going to continue a discussion and go a little bit deeper with the issue of recent linguistic philosophy and post-liberalism and describe then where that takes us, where we're at in this moment as over and against what is happening. And we've just, uh, Hayden and I have been talking here that we're really in the midst, I think, of a paradigm shift. And you can almost within institutions or at particular institutions locate what they're doing in this regard. That is that we have whole institutions that are dedicated to working out, In theology, uh, historical critical understanding, we have institutions that are beyond that, that are are in post-liberalism, maybe. Who who would you include in the post-liberal? If you wanted to go study theology and study post-liberalism, where would you go?
0: The first person you would need to read is uh, either Hans Frey, and check out his Eclipse of Biblical Narrative or The Identity of Jesus Christ. Or George Limbeck, who was his colleague at Yale, uh, who wrote a a little short but powerful book called The Nature of Doctrine. So those are the two main guys for what's called post-liberal theology, which we'll come to this later, should we just call it Yale School Theology, because who, in fact, is a part of it. But if you want to read how that is taken up, then most people go to Stanley Hauerwas, Catherine Tanner also of Yale, uh, George Hunsinger of uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, William Platcher, who is now deceased, but was at Wabash College, and uh, Bruce Marshall of Southern Methodist University of Texas. Uh, Those would probably be the second generation post-liberals
1: so there's no place you can just go and say hey I, this is something i want to study that what you're describing i think this is that there is no coherent institutional commitment but what you'll find is individuals in various places trying to to in some way pose this alternative within institutions
0: yes and no yes in the sense that there are a number of individuals that are working at different institutions you stanley who's now retired at duke katherine tanner he was at the university of chicago now she's back at yale Uh, bruce marshall at southern methodist university george hunsinger at princeton theological seminary so in that sense yes no in the sense that all of this on my account of post-liberal theology comes straight out of yale in fact i would almost like to say yale school theology is a more appropriate term and Yale School of theology, because of the influence of Stanley Harrows and others on faculty at Duke Divinity, gets taken up at Duke University. So that later writers like Jonathan Tran, who would probably be a third, third um, generation post-liberal, who's at Baylor University in the theology department, he'll call it Yale-Duke School. And he's got a point with that too, because it's not just the the influence of Stanley Howard was like I said, but as I also said, the the other folks on faculty at Duke, you think of Richard B Hayes, who was at Yale, uh, while Hans Fry and Limbeck were still there. Mm-hmm. You've you've got Ellen Davis, who studied under Brevard Childs, but was was still a beneficiary of. Uh, Yale Theology, you've got Warren Smith in the Church History Department, uh, Stephen Chapman in the Old Testament Department, a a Yale graduate as well. So uh, yes, in the sense that there are individuals across the country working in different spaces um, and and trying to carve out a place uh, with the, the insights, but no, in the sense that it seems to be the major places where this sort of thing is going on. Historically, have been at Yale and at Duke. Uh, which Which
1: it, 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 we're in a, a paradigm shift in, in many ways. And this, uh, you know, this I'm always thinking of Kuhn here that when he talks about revolutions, that what happens in revolutions is that they're bloody revolutions and people get killed in these revolutions. Mm-hmm. I'm a victim <laughs> <laughs> of, uh, of the present revolution that having uh, I, I was, you know, in Japan, I, I came back and didn't realize quite the setting that I was in. and But in a sense, you, you've you experienced this whole thing in, in your journey. I won't ask you to relate that. What is happening? You know, I'm, I'm thinking of somebody that right now, if you're a young Christian, and you're trying to get a lie of the landscape, it's very difficult to do uh to understand what's happening because there are there are still the old you know this is the picture of Kuhn that the old paradigm still is in existence and that it will be in existence you know until this generation i suppose uh that there are people fighting this battle and still be being trained in this paradigm that is the in theology the old historical critical understanding in which you get fundamentalism and and liberalism and So if you go and study in a New Testament department somewhere, uh, you're probably going to get one side of that. You'll either get the fundamentalist, which was the institution that I was at, where we met, or you'll get the other side, you'll get the liberal. And that was, you know, that's sort of almost the the end point. In that sense, I think we're at kind of a late modern understanding. It may not seem that way sometimes because this thing just seems alive in a well at certain places but at the same time then there is this other thing happening that is just a move beyond the old liberal fundamentalist historical critical and that's what we want to describe we've been describing a little bit and that's the significance of post-liberalism it is a move out of the uh those sorts of controversies and a reappreciation then of i i think a pre-modern understanding, but maybe you can never be you know simply pre-modern anymore that it really is a moving beyond the modern and understanding the inadequacies. But let's describe a little bit then a kind of layer uh, sort of approach that uh, if we had to describe let's describe a modern understanding of what's happening in philosophy in a kind of Kantian, understanding or a Cartesian, and then how that begins to break down. How would you narrate that?
0: Um, probably not as well as you would. Um, <laughs> now, um, well, that that is probably true. I think the breakdown ultimately has to, to do with epistemology, ways of knowing and understanding what you see in post-liberal theology and a, a move past modernity is a rejection that, well, a rejection in foundationalism, that what we know to be true is on the basis of uh, something at rock bottom, that there can be a rock bottom idea or uh, intuition that grounds the rest of our knowledge. So uh, in, let's say, prior to Kant, you have empiricism, that you ground your knowledge and sense experience and in descartes you have rationalism that is you ground everything according to your reason but reason here doesn't isn't reason in the ancient sense um but it's more of a disembodied sort of thing that you can know independent of sorts of things uh, or I- experience with 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 things Uh, Whereas in the ancient kind of period, reason was an embodied thing. Hence the connection between intellectual virtues and the moral virtues. That reason is part of an integrated life. And Descartes, you don't really get that. And I think you would narrate that very well. But after Kant, you have a calling into question, that sort of way of of doing things. And if we fast forward a 100 years or so, or 200 years or so, we come to uh someone like ludwig wittgenstein who calls into question the whole thing and that whole system and one could argue that kant is still working within a foundationalist epistemology because he's still trying to ground knowledge on something in particular whereas for wittgenstein and those who would take him up and their their work and this is what's relevant for the post-liberals is is an anti-foundationalist
1: or a non-foundationalist. In somebody like Descartes, maybe the difference between a Descartes and a Kant is that uh, Descartes is kind of naively imagining uh, that language takes him somewhere outside of, that language points beyond itself. Even within, if you think of the cogito, the two I's, that I think, but I think is over and against I am. But Descartes, uh, naively assumes mm-hmm. no problem there. That is that that in some way these two things correspond, and how they correspond, it, you know, it begins to fall apart in Immanuel Kant because what Kant brings out about Descartes' Cogito is that the thinking thing, that is the thing that is doing the thinking and the thought itself, I know this all sounds obscure, but it, it, it really does get, I think, too... Uh, the problem that he sees and the the that he's trying to overcome that is that you cannot bring together the two eyes and for him then this thinking thing is just a uh, uh, it, it would be aligned with what he calls the noumena and of course the noumena is the thing in itself it is the essence of things and in what The whole Kantian project is kind of undone, I think, in that realization Mm -hmm. that you cannot arrive at the noumena, the thinking thing, the thing itself, uh, through thought. Uh, That language in some way falls short of reality, that language is uh, inadequate to get at the essence Mm -hmm. of things. And so we're left in uh, that there is a kind of falling apart of foundationalism or modernism. And that then gives rise to Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, who is going to take Kant and say, oh, yeah, that's the problem. But he's going to take the problem as the solution, which, of course, is we're no longer dealing in the area of reason. Some sort of reasoned, you know, foundationalism. We've moved beyond a, a kind of world in which I, I would describe Hegel. You know, his idea that in some way nothing and something, this dialectical, what you might say, dialectical materialism or Marxism. You can read Hegel either way uh, as being some sort of, you know, have referring to. Noose or spirit or mind, whether that's an essence or not an essence, in the end, I'm not sure that it really matters because we're no longer in in modern a modern world, but we're in the breakdown of modernity and the unleashing then of you know the whole Marxist deconstructionist. There is an undoing of modernity. If you would describe it in psychoanalytic terms, this is, of course, where Lacan and Zizek enter in. That, uh, in a Lacanian understanding, that for them, then uh, Hegel has described, and certainly for Zizek, Hegel has described the truth of the human condition, of human subjects, that we live. In fact, that Descartes got it right, but not in the sense that Descartes meant it, or that modernists meant it. Descartes got it right that what we have is the the thinking thing and the thought and the, the incompatibility uh, or incongruity of those two things. And that's what a human subject is. That the human subject is itself arises then around this uh, Cartesian cogito. And so what, what a, a Zizek is proposing is we need this thing. Mm-hmm. So... Zijak always describes himself as Cartesian, but he means that, that, oh yeah, this, uh, what he would describe it as a primordial lie, a fantasy. But we need the fantasy. And so the world is floating on this kind of uh, fantasy. Kind of like uh,
0: Plato's noble lie makes society go on.
1: Oh, run that down for us.
0: Uh, Well, I mean, I'm just thinking of. political philosophy that in order to make it all work that you've got to base it on some sort of noble lie in the words of plato uh lest lest people ultimately not know why why they are doing the sorts of things that they are doing and serving the state and all that good stuff uh you get this in a movie like the dark knight where Batman at the end of the movie spoiler alert for any of you that haven't seen it, but I mean, you've got about 11 years. Uh, so sorry. Um, but, uh, Batman has just, um, fought with Harvey Dent to the death and Harvey Dent has been revealed as the duplicitous person that he is under the, uh, the, the Joker's intense deconstructionism and, uh, Batman, Aware that this this white knight this hero who is actually duplicitous uh the people can't bear that and there will be anarchy he uh ent- he he tells he tells commissioner gordon that they should tell a noble lie and tell continue to tell the story of harvey dent as the white knight uh only one side of the two-face and place the rest of the blame on a scapegoat like Batman so that the people can be united in their uh, hatred for a single person and meanwhile continuing to serve the lie that is that Harvey Dent is a good man and just and and and, uh, and uh, capable of leading the people
1: if <clears> hero. <throat> That's the perfect illustration. But maybe we can't. In other words, I think we're in a period. We still got people playing the game. They're still imagining we still got the Batman and the Joker, and you got the whole thing. And then there are some who kind of see well, wait a minute. This whole thing is is a kind of uh, false dichotomy. It's a false worldview. The whole thing is taking place in a misunderstanding. And that would be the deconstructionist, the Marxist liberation theology. Uh, I think a lot of feminist theology fits in there. That it has recognized the law and said, let's, let's tear this down. Let's undo it. And it is then, it's not simply Marxism. It's entered into uh, the theological arena that uh, people would just say, let's, let's pull down the idol of modernity as if that's an end in and of itself yeah that that's um classically
0: a, a mannequin way of viewing the world that that all is evil or all is good uh in this case modernity is is pure evil we get we got to take it down
1: I've, I've done a couple of uh i've done a podcast and we went to a film that kind of illustrates this, the commons, and uh, about tearing down the statue in uh, the University of North Carolina. It turns out you were right there seeing this. And we at the film, then, the, uh, the, the students showed up at the film to protest the film, and I was a little unclear what there was to protest because the film was completely sympathetic to what they were doing. Other, the thing, the problem with it was that came out is the filmmakers were white, It didn't matter what their perspective was, or their sympathy, or their empathy, but the fact that, in some way, you know, white colonial perspectives need to be deconstructed and undone, and the only way to do that is that for black filmmakers then to give voice to their own understanding, and so it is the classical dialectic in which uh, you you have the you know the, the nothing over and against something, or good over and against evil. And the way you resolve the problem, you know, in the in a Marxist notion, the proletariat arises, the workers then take the place of the bosses. And so that there is a, a, a kind of just a flipping, that's a lot of feminist theology, in, in which you really don't undo the dialectic, uh, you don't undo the construct of things as we have them. And I'm afraid that's where uh, in a lot of uh, deconstructionist thought and as it's clearly that's the case on you know university campuses but even in theology departments we've been pervaded and so if we would relate it to the crisis in modernity we are in the midst of a crisis where you're at you know for m- modernist or, or fundamentalists they will basically bury their head and not notice they'll say well this is just this is just more liberalism uh-huh. And, and there's a kind of incapacity to recognize what it is that, like the deconstructionists, you know, the, deconstructionist, the anti-colonialists, the, the rise of the feminists, there, there is a kind of notion, well, they just, they're just wrong. And of course, the problem is not that they're just wrong. They are recognizing oppression and injustice. And and in fact, if you do that theologically, well, that's precisely you know, the Bible's over and against these social injustices. You know, this is sort of where as a person that's nonviolent or a pacifist, I think that's what's what the New Testament is teaching. But even even among pacifists, there would be two ways of understanding this. I might just take this up as a cause in and of itself, as if you know the deconstruction of violence or the undoing of violence and social oppression and violence that's equate that with what christianity is about that my job then is to in some way forcefully i don't know how you can forcefully Im- impose pacifism but something like that
0: you make you make it an ideology and you tie it to a, a specific uh, professor or set of professors in a university and that professor um, gets a gathering or comes to hold sway. Maybe he, he or she gets tenured and then you fire everybody that
1: disagrees with you.
0: That's how you do it.
1: <laughs> the, the violent pacifist, ironically. And, and, and that's the danger, uh, I, I think, with this moment in time. If you would relate it to a kind of biblical moment, that it's the point at which in Corinthians, the the Corinthians have discovered the idol is nothing. The idol needs to come down. That we can deconstruct, you know, if you take that all the way, that the powers that be, the principalities and powers, the emperor, the human constructs, are in fact amount to nothing except this kind of oppressive force that's been put upon us, and so we need to to tear the idols down. We need to have a a revolution, perhaps, or at least an undoing of the system as it is, and that might be seen as a kind of end, a justifiable end, and in, in maybe a meaningful life. Maybe one could give oneself over. Completely to going around and declaring the idol is nothing, you know, that the emperor has no clothes. Let's behead the czar. Let's get rid of the king. Uh, let's get rid of uh, the masculine uh, oppressors or let's get rid of the white oppressors.
0: And, and isn't that interesting that this happens from liberationists? I, you know, I've I've thought for a long time, uh, why not just call them liberationists? or not liberationist, but conquest theology. Because immediately what happens after liberation, if you're following the story, you know, in, in Exodus 14, is soon conquest. And this is precisely what happens in these sorts of theologies and ideologies is that after we've torn it down, well, in fact, in tearing it down and setting ourselves free, we've we've made ourselves the emperors. We've now risen to power. And just it seems to strike against the, the Gospels' insight that at the heart of every human being is both victim and oppressor. And it's not so easy to narrate history in this this Marxist dialectical way, this Manichaean way of good, bad, evil, evil and uh, righteousness and all that sort of thing. I just, I find it's fascinating that we don't call these conquistadors. What, what could be something that would really r- reveal it for what it is, which is violence, liberated, violent ideology? I don't know. that That isn't sound as <laughs> good.
1: Yeah, and that's where we're at, whatever that thing is, the late modern, the postmodern. In other words, one might mistake the discussion here. The point is not that there isn't idols and that they don't amount to anything. There are oppressors, and yes, that needs to be exposed. It's not a questioning that that's a lie that needs to be undone, but to stay there. And I think that's where we're at culturally. That's where we're at. In terms of theology, for a lot of theologians, they've discovered Derrida, they've discovered postmodernism, they've discovered deconstruction, and they're just absorbing that into. Uh, they're assuming that's what theology is about.
0: Yeah, I think they're being they're being absorbed by it um, yeah. because I I think that as we we continue to narrate the story and, and get to the Yale School. Uh, And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, for theologians informed by Karl Barth and the Yale School, it's about scripture absorbing the world and and not the other way around, being absorbed by the world or having scripture absorbed by the world so that it is exactly as you've narrated. Um, Either you buy into that whole thing wholesale and end up becoming a deconstructionist Marxist queer liberationist etc or you become a fundamentalist fideist who just puts his head under the sand and prays that what actually exists outside of himself with which is an ocean doesn't but you know the post-liberals are going to say no it's it's the other way around uh, our way of knowing is informed by scripture and our identity is informed by scripture therefore Let's have this absorb everything else around us and inform us. And so it can be that deconstructionists have an insight; they do, and it can be that uh, Marxists have an insight; they do. But their insight has to be taken captive to obey Christ. And this, I think, is illustrated very well in how we approach idols in general. I'm here. I'm I'm talking about not. Immaterial idols, uh, like uh, mm-hmm. let's say ideas that you're in love with or that are focusing your attention. I mean, more concrete idols that you would find in Roman temples. How do you interpret Paul's insight that that idol is ultimately nothing? Um, you know, there that there is but one one God and Lord. Do you destroy that idol, or do you ride over it and take it captive to Christ now? This is historically uh, something that Protestants and Catholics have divided about, Protestants and and taking over some Catholic churches in Europe would take statues down and and break windows because they believed them to be idols. Whereas for the Catholic, it was the idea of these are ancient symbols and, you know, historically they might have been tied to a greek or roman cult but the gospel has written over this and has absorbed them into and put them in rightful place within our our view of the world with jesus as lord and these as the saints or jesus's servant that's why i think um being clear about the passive versus the active who's doing the the absorbing are we absorbing deconstructionism marxism all that stuff, or are we being absorbed by it? And the way that you were narrating it, which was quite right, is that this cultural moment, um, largely evangelical Christianity, but of course with Mainline, the Mainline group, Roman Catholics, is that it seems to, to us that they're being absorbed by these more violent ideologies.
1: I'm wondering if there is a singular answer to this. In other words, that I, whether it's a question of what, can and cannot be absorbed. If you think back to Corinth, you know, that when Paul is hitting upon this, there is a kind of tension there, because some are saying, okay, the idol is nothing, and so let's go eat dinner in the courts of the idolatrous temple and share in the meals that they offer there, because that would be culturally advantageous to especially the cultural elites in Corinth. That may be idol language in business and in, you know, economics. The world of the idol is not just a religious, you know, religion is not isolated then from everything else, especially in a traditional culture. It's interwoven with everything else. And so the argument on the part of the Corinthian elite would be to say, well, we can do this thing. We can go eat in the courts of the idol And because we know that the idol is nothing, it doesn't amount to anything, and that's enough. And then, of course, Paul's point is, well, wait a minute, you're now nearing the demonic. And what he seems to mean is that, you know, the idol is nothing, but what is the nature of evil? How does evil really function? And how is evil connected to the idolatrous temple? I think it's precisely in and through this kind of displacement that you get. In other words, the problem in idolatry or the problem in evil is not that there is a world that you can tap into there and, you know, in some way manipulate evil. or And that's what, you know, the religionists always imagine, or at least in my experience in Japan, the the very impetus behind the religion is to imagine that you can deal with the devil you know, they don't call them devils. It's always gods. But in some way, by offering these offerings or doing these sacrifices, that you can make the do- god or the evil or the and the reason I, it's easy to fall back into demonic language, because actually the gods in Japan are protected by devil looking characters. So you're really dealing with fearful things, whatever this is, it's quite fearful. And so relieving the fear is a huge thing, that these things, you really can't, the gods really won't reach out and smack you down. That's not really the way the world works. If you extend it out then from that notion to not just concrete idolatry, but the way that idolatry, you know, that ideology does function, is that we reify certain things. We imagine that these powers are real. We imagine that uh, in some way, race, maybe there's an essence to whiteness or an essence, the, the resolution to the essence of whiteness, by the way, is not another essence, Japanese or something else, that, that in some way we're able to take that apart. That's a wonderful thing. But Paul then moves in and he says, yes, but you need another law in place. And that is the law of love. It's the gospel. It's the fullness." of the community that is he's saying there's two choices you can sup with demons knowing that the idol is nothing does not relieve that possibility just deconstructing it in fact may be still dealing in evil it's uh, that's the way that the devil always works but it is not that there is an ontological essence to evil or that the ideologies in some way whether they're idolatrous or simply a cultural ide- ideologies that, in some way, they really are, uh, have an ontology in competition with the ontology of God or goodness. But the thing that they have, the thing that they carry, the thing that is recognized—I think—in deconstruction, yeah, these things amount to nothing. But recognizing that, see, this is—we're now back at Hegel. Hegel recognized that. He says, oh, it's just nothing. But then he lends an essence to this nothing. He imagines that this, that's where you're at, I think, in a kind of deconstructive moment. And so you you have to put in place then the law of love, and the law of love then is to to sup with Christ, to be part of the body of Christ. That you can't just free yourself from oppression per se as inherently meaningful. That in the end, that if you put it in the language of of the New Testament, that you rid yourself of one demon, but then 10,000 more enter in.
0: And this enters in very nicely with criticisms against post-liberal theology that say that they don't care about justice or reconciliation or anything like that. And here it's important to note what kind of move, even the accusation, is that suggests that somehow you have a neutral view of justice or reconciliation or concern for the poor or you know gender liberation or sexual liberation for you know uh, sexual minorities, et cetera, et cetera. But that's still buying into the the idea that you're that you're an individual subject who has concepts uh, for things and yet just doesn't have words for them yet that you're, you're disembodied. But for the post liberals, they're going to say, they're going to call that out for what it is, uh, which is a reification of, of our own nothingness. (laughs) They're going to say, yes, we care about justice and reconciliation and X, Y, and Z as those are reconstituted and informed by a crucified lord jesus you know these sorts of accusations of not not concerned enough for justice or or liberation of some sort of minority those are the accusations that are labeled against the post liberals that accusation is unique because it suggests that you can have an understanding of justice and liberation that is not informed by the gospel for the post liberals that would be their critique of that which would be yeah we we care about justice but that justice is informed by the cross of christ there are certain actions that we're not going to do in the name of secular justice because that's precisely what that is it's secular justice it's not the justice
1: of christ it's not the justice of god can we specify here are we talking about liberation theology black liberation theology specifically
0: no i'm I'm talking about we can't include that i'm talking about just general uh criticisms of of post liberal theology that are had by you know liberals or revisionists or whomever it's that the the, accus- the accusation is always that they're sectarian or fideists or tribalists because they emphasize the primacy of like the scripture absorbing the world uh, or the epistemological uh priority of the church but what they don't understand is that for post-liberals to think that we can have a knowledge of justice or liberation apart from our identity as christians is just absurd it's falling into the same uh foundationalist view that you can have a concept and you can be a thinking thing prior to having words for that concept.
1: Is this then, I was wanting you to speak a little bit to, in other words, I think that there's two sides of this moment. There's, I mean, there's all sorts of fragments and people are working in this. So you have people that kind of a radical feminist or radical black theology or liberation theology. But if you would take it to a kind of philosophical framework, in other words, we have all of these in-between moments. We're in a kind of revolutionary moment. But part of this that one might think is is kind of in-between, and I'm a little bit unclear, is what's happening philosophically with what might be called philosophical pragmatists, like uh, Quine and Donald Davidson. That is that these are people who have, they're working in an analytic Philosophical tradition—they've recognized the kind of end of modernity or post-modernity. They've recognized something is there in continental philosophy, but in a, in a way for these people, it's just—I I think they can be fairly dismissive. Can you describe for us a little bit then how we would fit that track in? That what's happening in philosophy with what's what we've just narrated in terms of? Uh, what's happening in theology.
0: So I can speak about that only from the critique of post-liberal theologians. So the critique, for example, by someone like Jonathan Tran at Baylor University against Davidson and Quine, it's that Quine and Davidson are still obsessed with coming up with a theory of truth. And what the the post-liberals want to say in the mouth of Tran is something like that's still obsessed with the question about how do words refer? And when you do that, you're still buying into the false picture of our ourselves being divided and our our knowledge of the world being divided from from language. Again, that you, that you have a concept for a thing, but you just don't have words for it yet. That you just haven't acquired words, which. Again, this is the critique that Wittgenstein gives of Augustine, I've argued elsewhere. Is
1: it that they're saying that in some way, experience is more basic than language? Is that a crude, too crude a way to put it? I mean, th- that something is basic. That,
0: so it could be experience, but the, there's some sort of foundation that can ground our knowledge of the world prior to language.
1: So it's still, it's just more of the same.
0: Yes, yes. Or at least that's going to be the argument of the post-liberals. Again, another criticism that is ushered against post-liberals is that they don't have an adequate theory of truth. I always like Stanley Hauerwas' whip back to this is, okay, why don't you worship that theory of truth as Lord and not Jesus?
1: (laughs) And of course, I think what the comeback means is the theory per se, yeah, is is not what we're aiming at.
0: Yeah, i I mean, you're you're still obsessed with trying to connect the word in the thing. Um, you're you're trying to connect the word to the world, when in fact you only know the world the the world through the words, your words. And that's not to say that a world doesn't in- exist independent of your word, but it's just that your knowledge is bound up with you yourself. Are bound up with words, and so don't make language the problem. It's not a problem of language. You're 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 making something that is just part of what it means to be human an epistemological and metaphysical problem when you posit things like that. And for Christians, truth is fundamentally a person, and it's a person Jesus Christ. And so it, that's that's something that's embodied. That's somebody who's encountered. it's not not disembodied.
1: Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.